Welcome to the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast, episode number 94. My name is Christopher Luft. I'm one of the co-founders of Lima Charlie, and I will be your host. On today's episode, we're going to be talking with the one and only Matt Bromley about some cutting-edge intel coming out of the Lima Charlie community Slack channel. It's another week, another set of bad actors, malicious files, and compromised systems. On today's show, we're going to be talking about some of the cutting-edge intel being shared by our awesome community in the Lima Charlie Slack channel, and a huge thank you to all those folks that take the time to share their knowledge with the rest of us. If you enjoy listening in on these Intel chats and aren't in our community Slack channel yet, then you should join the conversation. Much more information than we can get through on the show is being shared there, and you will get it in real time. You can join the Slack channel at slack.limacharlie.io. And as always for these chats, I'm joined by the one and only Matt Bromley. How are you doing today, Matt? Hey, Chris, doing well, doing well, having having fun and uh, really excited for, for this one. I think we got some good stuff to cover here, but I'm also looking forward, you know, New Year is, is going strong. For me still, uh, I think between last episode and this one, we had the infamous Quitters Day, which is the day when folks statistically drop out of their New Year's resolutions, and I'm happy to say that I did not. So I am, uh, you know, ho- hopefully January holds up strong for me, so we'll see. And you got the regular type things, up earlier, exercising, eating better, is that what you're... As always, right? All the things that we should all just be doing naturally, but uh, we even said, got to set goals to do, but uh, so far so good, I'm, I'm enjoying it. So I'm, I'm doing great. Yeah, my, my approach this year is to treat every week as a new start. So, uh, you know, start Monday morning with all the intention to adhere to those new and better principles. And if I fall short by the end of the week, well, we just start again on Monday. So. I like it. I, it's almost close to Elon Musk's resolutions, which is every week is a new startup. And uh, <laughs> there's a <laughs> new company coming out. But no, that's great to hear, man. Good for you. And best of luck to both of us. Okay, here we go. Um, and before we get into it, I just want to talk about something I ran into last week. I'm not going to mention the article specifically. If somebody's interested, they can go take a look at the Intel channel. But last Wednesday, January 10th, I was given a reminder that we have to be vigilant and discerning when reading reports and blog articles about new vulnerabilities and attacks. I initially got perked right up when I was reading about what sounded like a really nasty Microsoft exploit for which there was no signature on VirusTotal and no known way to configure protection. I got really concerned and was getting ready to dive in when one of the regular contributors on the Intel channel, shout out to Josh Tromblay, pointed out that the article had some characteristics that made it suspect. He suggested that it sounded like maybe it was hype and a sales pitch, and sure enough, it came out shortly after that it was simply a variation on an existing patched vulnerability and not the doomsday type scenario the writers of the article made it out to be. All this to say, I just wanted to remind folks to stay vigilant. Everybody's trying to maximize their clicks, and we really need to take a look at everything with a cautious eye. Yeah, you know, Chris, I think you're you're pulling out a, a really, really important lesson for folks here, which is, is as you go through and read this, and let's be clear, we're not coming off the bat and saying that there's any untrustworthy sources, perhaps. But remember that a lot of what we report on from an information security perspective is based on blog posts, uh, opinionated posts in a lot of cases. There's technical details and backups to support it, but that doesn't always necessarily qualify what everyone says about the thing that they've uncovered. You know, I'll, I'll share when, when I when I when I read through this and, and I kind of thought about the scenario that you're describing here. I, I went through an exercise that I personally had gone through many years ago, where I had, as part of a case I was working. Um, I had uncovered a piece of malware that to to the best of my knowledge, to the best of my knowledge, to the best of my Googling capabilities, had never been seen before. 
And thus, I described it to folks as never having been seen before. And I I, I gave a, a talk about it saying this thing has never been seen before. And sure enough, someone came out of the woodworks and was like, oh, no, 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 this thing is well known. Here's this report that we wrote that has never seen the light of sun on this piece of malware. And perspective is always an important key when you go through this. So I will say that, you know, I did not have any, uh, I should say, malicious nature. However, I had to step back and say I, I, I was I was wrong, right? I was not the first person to ever observe this and see it. But the tone of which I approached it was based on that particular point in time. I think what you're calling out here is another tone. Maybe maliciousness is not the right word, but click happy or, uh, you know, looking to garner clicks or, or looking to get clicks or something like that is another tone with which some of this, some, some of these articles can, can be written with. And I equate them a lot when I see things like this, Chris, I equate it a lot to like when you read about, when you read about recipes online, right? You're like, Hey, I just want to learn how to make this pot roast. And it's like 50 pages of descriptions and backups and ads and all those kinds of stuff to try to get you to click on something somewhere. And it's like, get to the actual content. And then you see a link where it's like, you know, this recipe has been borrowed from whatever cookbook that has up. And you're like, really? I went through all that to get there. We've got to approach it with a little bit of care and concern. And then, of course, you've also got to evaluate the content that you're seeing. So a huge hat tip to, to Josh and, and and in general, the folks in our Intel channel for, you know, really keeping an eye on what's being posted there and, and just being like, wait a second, if I take if I step back and take that objective look, I don't think this is what it's what it's saying. And and sure enough, you know, it did end up being a little bit of a sales generator. But that being said, good note for everyone. I'll just always kind of double check what you read and think about the tone, if there's any biases, if there's any end objective that the user or I should say the author is looking for other than to simply inform, right? Sometimes they do want you to click through and whatnot. We see a lot of this when we encounter different uh, security incidents and data breaches. In fact, uh, Chris, I think in, internally here at Lehman Charlie, we've definitely talked about a few of these just where it's just a sheer display of absolute lack of regard for folks' thoughts towards this, you know? And I think one of the ones that I remember, I think it was when the Caesars hack occurred, Chris, I think there was someone who was posting on LinkedIn who was like, you know, don't let this happen to you with my product. Oh, yeah. And it's kind of yeah, like- the ambulance chasers. Yeah. It's like, really, man? I mean, like, come on. That's not the tone we want to look for here, right? Let's educate and better everyone. And if your product is the natural answer, fantastic. But uh, let's not, you know, make Intel seem something that it's not, or let's let's not turn threats into something that they're not either. Yeah. The goal here is to make everybody safer, not sell more of your product. Yes, sir. All right. Let's get on to the Intel. The real Intel. <laughs> First up, we have an article from Fortinet about Banduk, which is a remote access Trojan that has been continually developed since it was first detected in 2007 and has been used through various campaigns by different threat actors over the years. This new Banduke variation has been distributed via PDF since this past October. The PDF file contains a shortened URL that downloads a password-protected .7z file. After the victim extracts malware with a password in the PDF file, the malware injects its payload into msinfo.exe. Before the injection, a registry key sorry before the injection, a registry key is created to control the behavior of the payload. The key name is the process ID of msinfo.exe, and the value contains a control code for the payload. Once executed with any argument, Banduke creates a registry key containing another control code that enables its payload to establish persistence, and it then injects a payload into a new process of msinfo.exe. 
The article provides a really in-depth technical breakdown, which I think would be interesting for anybody who wants to understand how malware like this works. For me, what I found interesting is how much this malware makes use of registry keys. I'm not super familiar with Windows at this level map, but from what I understand, they are changing fairly constantly through normal operations. Is there any way we can build detections here, or is it too busy and we should be focusing somewhere else? Yeah, the answer to all of the above is is yes, 100%. So the Windows registry, uh, you know, is in very simple terms, if we go high enough and whatnot, very simple terms, the registry can be thought of as a database uh, on a system. You know, it, it's it's not necessarily in like an SQL format or something like that, but it's a database that contains key value pairs that are used kind of from a configuration perspective at in large, you know, there's obviously the ability to have configuration in a local file if you want, but the Windows operating system, its various feature sets, capabilities, things like that are are largely controlled, you know, from the Windows registry, or at least I should say the parameters of those controls are reflected in the registry as well. Uh, and that, you know, ranges everything from different service types to uh, driver installations to things, you know, programs on the system. Um, and then the big one is obviously going to be auto runs as well. And one of the things that I noticed that that Banduke here takes advantage of is auto runs for persistence. And there's a few that it drops in under the uh, run keys, as they're more commonly known. And these are areas inside of the Windows registry that will cause a program or a script or whatever to be executed when the system boots up or at a various point in time. Um, and they're making use of that for persistence mechanisms. I think you called out, though, the one where the Windows registry was being used to store kind of like the PID of MS Info, which was then being used to control the behavior of the payload and whatnot. I, I think it's it, when we when we boil it down and think of the Windows registry as a database, it actually makes sense. Right. It's it's a place I can easily store my data. Um, admittedly, it's a place that may not be monitored as much or the use of registry operations is so prevalent in the Windows operating system that it, it would not be irregular to see a registry change being made. Furthermore, a lot of times when detection rules are written against the Windows registry, it's written in an atomic sense. It's for known bads, right? locations that we know malware likes to abuse or keys that indicate a certain thing. Um, one of the the biggest indicators I can think of for anyone who's curious about this is going to be the use of like sys internals, sysmon, psexec, and whatnot. A registry key is created when those tools are run for the very first time. It's a great detection point because it's like, hey, why is this thing running, right? I know it's going to be there. But I think the malware authors here just looked at the registry as a as a database, as a place to store configuration information rather than storing it in a file on disk or, or something like that. You know, interestingly enough, I, I find PID to be a really interesting key to use because it is an ephemeral, uh, you know, it, it's a temporal value. PIDs don't remain consistent through uh, over reboot and things like that. However, reading through a little bit more about how the malware is, is kind of stored and how it works and whatnot, I would assume it's only a short period of time where it needs to actually use that information before kind of the, you know, the ultimate files, DLLs and whatnot are downloaded onto the system and then other mechanisms might take over. But nonetheless, Chris, you asked about detections and specifically now that we know about this malware and how it's, how it operates and how it works, we could absolutely put detections together. I would not want to just simply turn on registry telemetry. That would be way too noisy for anyone to just look at or pay attention to. But 
This one does give us a way of maybe some behavior we could build towards it, right? The area where I do think there's a good detection opportunity is in the run keys, the run keys themselves that were used from a persistence mechanism. And this is the... I was going to ask about that. That's like the programs that run when the computer starts up, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And these are, uh, you know, that's a, that's a, that is a location that is worth monitoring kind of all the time. Um, not, you know, it can get noisy sometimes, admittedly, the, the run key locations, it's used legitimately by Windows as well, but it's a great place to look at. And then you can also do some, you know, sorts of, um, kind of, uh, false positive detections and things like that, where it, even though it may be a somewhat noisy location, you shouldn't see hundreds of entries every single day going in and out of there. It may be sparse enough that you could say, Hey, this is something I need to dig into further. Right. I would use it as a good starting point, but I would absolutely wrap detections around those places because those are the ones that serve as a common denominator detection as well, Chris. And these are where it's not just Banduk that uses them. It's a wide variety of malware that's out there. Sure. And on like a lockdown corporate computer, you could almost have a whitelist of programs in that key. Absolutely. Yeah. And you could, you know, I would say you could go a step further too and say, um, you know, in a large enterprise, not only can you have that kind of predetermined list, but you could also run, you know, a quick statistical analysis. For example, this, this Banduk malware, it's not going to install on every single system in the environment, you know? So let's say math, easy math. I've got a hundred systems and one of them gets infected with, with Banduk. I'll do a really quick analysis and say, Hey, this run key is only present on this one system. Statistically, I need to figure out what that is. It's already an anomaly. And then we discover it's malicious, right? Versus waiting for additional files to get dropped or something. Yeah. Yeah. Good advice. Interesting. All right. So Akamai researchers have uncovered a new crypto mining campaign, which has been active since the start of 2023. The malware is spread over SSH using a custom Mirai botnet that has been modified by the threat actors. The capabilities of the new botnet called NoahBot include a wormable self-spreader and an SSH backdoor to download additional binaries or to spread itself to new victims. As part of the attack, a modified version of the XMR rig miner is dropped. The miner obfuscates its configuration and also uses a custom mining pool to avoid exposing the wallet address used by the miner. The malware obfuscation and custom code show a high level of operational security, which usually indicates mature threat actors. But the naming of the malware binaries and some of the included strings are still quite childish, which Akamai says complicates the attribution. But I could see this being just another level of obfuscation from the threat actor. What do you think, Matt? Is that a bit of a stretch to think that the threat actors would be trying to appear to be less sophisticated and quote unquote more childish than they are as a way to obfuscate who they really are? Yeah, I think so, Chris. I think um, that's a that's a really interesting uh kind of way to phrase it but i think you called it out you know which which is funny because you never know and i think you and i have talked a lot about the kind of human side of this meaning don't forget there is a human you know behind the scenes there there's a human behind the keyboard who's putting some of these things together and honestly i mean chris i'll I'll be i'll be very frank with you there has been times where I've written a script or, or 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 written a thing and I've named it after the song that I'm listening to. And it is the most frustrating process because later on I try to go find that thing or I try to reference it in future material. And I'm like, what is this thing? Right. And then I, I, I come across it 
and it's like rickroll.py. And I'm like, wait, how did I, how did I get here? Right. Um, and then of course I'm afraid to open it in case it's like a piece of malware or something like that. But that being said, you, you never know what's going through kind of like adversarial minds when they're putting some of these things together and whatnot. Um, I, I did find it interesting, you know, that they do call out that there's like some embedded uh, song lyrics and stuff in here, which you, you never know, just 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 might have been an inspiration at the point in time. I, I will go another step, though, and say, and I'm maybe reaching on the analysis here, but including little bits and pieces like this may actually be a way to try and subvert some more advanced detection mechanisms. And I know that's going to sound weird, and some folks may be like, Matt, you have no clue what you're talking about. But I'm going to tell you right now, there are some automated mechanisms out there that do look for a population of English language letters, um, maybe other language letters and things like that when they're trying to determine, right? If it's a piece of malware and it's got zero error code, zero English messages in it whatsoever, it's just it, I, there's no language in here, then that may itself be an indicator there's something there. But normal Windows programs do have English phrases and English letters inside of them and whatnot, whether it's a disclaimer from Microsoft or part of the PE header or something along those lines or part of a signature. There are some words in there. And, you know, it, it, it may just be another level of obfuscation where the adversary is like, I'm just going to insert a bunch of random stuff in here. It may have also just been or threat actors being threat actors, adversaries being adversaries. We're just going to insert some dumb stuff inside of my XM rig miner. And whatever, if I get caught, I can send the link to my friends and say, hey, that was definitely me, you know, and I look at it a little bit kind of like uh, when, when folks go and do dares on camera or something like that, you know, like, hey, go jump behind that news reporter and wave your arms around or something like that. Yeah, yeah. I look at it in a similar sense like that, you know, they go back, they record the, you know, record that thing and say, hey, that was me. I was on TV, blah, blah. And it's like, yeah, I mean, you had your two minutes of fame and then we moved on. Yeah. Right. But uh, I don't know. We'll, we'll see. Maybe it turns into something. Yeah. And this is unrelated, but you actually got me to remember. I once saw a guy named Corey Doctorow talk. If anybody listening knows, he's a sci-fi author, used to be a, a regular poster on Boing Boing when that was a thing. But in the talk, he actually showcased a little project he built that would take uh, metadata from your playlist at the time that you made the commit and make it part of the commit when you were writing code so uh, if i can find that project out there i'll link it in the show notes for anybody there we interested. Go. yeah i uh i i started this is a long time ago more than 10 years ago but i started at a company and during our onboarding one of the folks in hr asked everyone what is like your favorite band or what kind of music do you like to listen to and that was written at the bottom of your name tag so, uh, and it was meant to be a kind of, I think, I think more of an, a mnemonic thing, which is like, oh, that's, that's Chris. And he likes to listen to this as opposed to Chris who likes to listen to that. Right. It was a way to help you remember who was who and whatnot. Unfortunately, some folks didn't see it that way and either wrote down a really embarrassing genre of music, embarrassing because of what happened next. They started to be get labeled by songs and whatnot, you know, and it wasn't like, Hey, there's Chris. It's like, Hey, there's born in USA. And it's just like, no, that's that's not what it was. And and you never know, yeah. right? You never know where, where some of these things are going to lead to. And it's always interesting when we're here discussing and, and you know, it, it's a coin miner and I'm I'm not trying to downplay the capabilities of malware and whatnot. But here we are having a discussion about a technical piece of malware. And we're actually focused more on song lyrics than we are about the malware itself. Maybe adversaries, that was their goal. Yeah. Let me just 
push the conversation another way. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I found this one from Secalerts interesting, not because of any technical detail, but because of the policy approach. In the past, we have previously mentioned some of the legislative approaches anybody watching the space can see coming down the pipeline, but I think this may be the leading edge of many different federal regulations that are going to be put in place to help shore up our digital infrastructure, you know, in the fight against ransomware, but also potential future conflicts. The Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, an arm of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, will reportedly set out the proposed requirements that include two-factor authentication and maintaining a vulnerability fixing program. These requirements are going to be tied to federal funding. The healthcare industry has long been at or close to the top of most attacked industries, and this tough stance comes after more than 640 U.S. healthcare data breaches took place and 91,734,000 records were stolen in the 12 months leading up to October 2023. It's unsure how the hospital industry will react to the new requirements, although a fight looks likely. The American Hospital Association indicated this when they showed their disapproval at the notion of trying of tying the requirements to funding after the Department of Health and Human Services suggested in December last year that the requirements were in the pipeline. The new requirements are expected to take effect before the end of the year. Seems like a good first step to me, Matt. What do you think of this one? Is it going to have a material impact on the level of successful attacks we are seeing in the healthcare sector? You know, Chris, I... I'm a little bit torn on this one, but I find myself a little bit biased when I say that because I'm only a little bit torn because it's healthcare, and and I'm not showing preference towards either side here, but it's definitely a sector that becomes very, you know, like, like your knees get a little weak when you start saying, well, you need to do this and you need to do that, right? Because these are defibrillators and, and these are like, you know, machines that keep people alive and things like that. And it's like, well, you know, how much pressure can I really put on them? But I think this is a, a typical uh, – I will start off by saying I find this to be a very typical federal move. I don't mean that in a negative way, but I do find it very typical to start to tie these things in with funding requirements and say, hey, look, we've been asking, suggesting, recommending for years to go do this, this, and that. You haven't, so we're just going to start tying it. And if you want money, if you want you know the continuous money stream to come in, you need to shore this up. And I think from that aspect, uh, you know, it's it's good to have like it's better to have an incentive if there isn't an incentive that's in place there. And I think, oh, we're healthcare, we have to be funded, is a really tough stance to take. And, and I'm not sure that's you know the right opinion, but I I do think that's kind of one of the opinions that's gone around there has been like, well, I mean, we're a hospital. Of course, they're going to fund us, right? We provide necessary services and things like that. And as much as I agree with that statement, I don't agree with that being a reason not to secure up your defenses and, and secure up your technologies. There's probably some folks who work in healthcare who would have very strong disapproval with what I'm saying right now. And that's totally okay. Uh, only because adversaries have figured it out. And this, we're not talking like the past six months, right? We're talking about for years, maybe decade plus now, adversaries have figured out just how fragile this ecosystem is, just how fragile these tech stacks are. And 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 they come after them anyways, you know? So if the adversaries are not going to discern and not going to be kind about this and whatnot, then we need incentive to shore up these defenses. We we need a reason to, to start to bring some of these together. And let's be clear, right? Chris, I... I'm not trying to diminish this at all, but like if you think about all the things that we've talked about on this podcast here, some of the requirements include 
two-factor authentication and patching vulnerabilities. Yeah. Like imagine that being the hill that you're going to die on. You know, I will not implement two-factor authentication. And it's like, really? Yeah. So I don't think, and I don't know, I haven't read through all of the requirements, but I highly doubt that the requirements coming down the line are every hospital must spend a billion dollars on every IT stack and blah, 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 right? I don't, I don't think they're going that route. I think they're saying, hey, look, and I think you and I have talked about the progress bar of threats before. Let's just say there's a progress bar of threats, zero to 100%. And the government is saying, please do these things so your progress bar moves from 2% to 50%. And that's really what we want right now. I don't think that's that big of an ask. Yeah. All right. Again, unless there's some provision in there, which is like a complete overhaul of all networks and everything like that, which would be very unmanageable for some of those IT teams coming down the line and saying, hey, we need you to patch your stuff. We need you to implement two-factor authentication. We need you to take some of these basic steps, you know, just to go that route. And I would almost go the other route and I would, or not the other route, but I would look at it from the other side and if you were to propose a medical safety requirement to these exact same institutions, you would propose it in a way of preventing patient loss, patient death or things like that, you know? And I think it's valuable to take that aspect too and say, hey, unfortunately, these side these threat actors, they, sometimes they cross that kinetic line. This helps you prevent that happening or helps you mitigate that happening. And some of it's really simple implementations. And in that case, I, I want to see it. But again, I'm not a fan of, uh, I'm going to call them unnecessary stresses being pushed down on sectors and industries for no reason. But I think the healthcare industry could definitely utilize some incentive to shore up those defenses and make itself a little bit less of a easy target maybe a moderate target or, you know, uh, maybe a, a harder target so that such low hanging fruit doesn't get in. But, you know, if we're in a healthcare environment and we're running outdated operating systems or outdated external perimeter devices or single factor authentication with easy to guess passwords, you know, spring 2024 and stuff like that, I'm sorry, but that just doesn't cut it. Yeah in 2024. That just doesn't cut it from a cyber defense perspective. Everyone here needs to level up and find a way to do it. Find a way to make it happen. Yeah. And like you said, on the surface, the requirements that they're putting forward seem like, you know, step one, it's uh very low hanging fruit. That's right. It, it feels like table stakes for us, right? Like two factor off. Oh, are you serious? It's like, yeah, everyone has yeah. that, you know, I, I would, Chris, another thing I would add on here for those of you listening who may be working in those sectors and are feeling some of the pressure of this, I would encourage you to explore some of the different technical capabilities that are out there as well. Implementing some of these technologies is not as difficult as it used to be five, 10 years ago. Um, you know, I, I worked with an organization almost 10 years ago who implemented duo factor, uh, du sorry, I should say multi-factor authentication via duo. They implemented it overnight. Like they, they, it was just, you know, slash and burn, put it in place. This thing's going to happen. If anyone complains, they can call the help desk and we'll deal with it. Right. And, that may not work for everyone for certain access requirements, but the company just bit the bullet and did it and it happened. And now they, and I, and I can say with confidence because I helped them investigate it, they prevented a subsequent attack from occurring. So the ROI on that was almost immediate for them because they stopped a, th and a threat actor two weeks later, right? But my point being, they did it overnight. 
There was almost a thousand people in that organization. So it wasn't a small effort by any means, but they did it overnight, but they definitely went, you know, a little bit hard in the paint in that aspect. If you came to me and said, I'm going to give you a month or two to roll out multi-factor authentication. Okay. Come out with a plan and do it. Come out with a plan and distribute this and get it out there because threat actors just, they aren't waiting. They're not waiting to see if we can test and play chicken, cat and mouse and things like that. They're coming after you and they're doing it very prolifically and very publicly. Yep. All right. So the last one I have today is from Bleeping Computer. I wasn't sure if I was going to include it given that it is reporting on a WordPress plugin vulnerability, which I think at this point is almost expected, but the severity of the vulnerability and the number of potential users impacted convinced me otherwise. I consider this one sort of a public service announcement. Two vulnerabilities impacting the post SMTP mailer WordPress plugin, an email delivery tool used by 300,000 websites, could help attackers take complete control of the site's authentication. Last month, a couple of security researchers discovered two vulnerabilities in the plugin and reported them to the vendor via WordPress's bug bounty program. The first tract is CVE 2023 6875, is a critical authorization bypass flaw arising from a type juggling issue on the Connect app REST endpoint. The issue impacts all versions of the plugin up to 2.8.7. The second vulnerability is a cross-site scripting problem identified as CVE-2023-7027 that arises from insufficient input sanitization and output escaping. The flaw impacts post-SMTP up to version 2.8.7 and could let attackers inject arbitrary scripts into the web pages of the affected site. The flaws were first reported on December 19, 2023, and the vendor... As of January 1st, 2024, has pushed a version 2.8.8 of post-SMTP that resolved both issues. Hopefully the vendor was able to reach out to users of this plugin and let them know of the need to update. I know there's a lot of errant and neglected WordPress sites out there. And based on the statistics from WordPress.org, there are roughly 150,000 sites that run a vulnerable version of that plugin that is lower than 2.8. From the remaining half that have version 2.8 and higher installed. What do you think, Matt? Are a bunch of WordPress websites about to get pwned? You mean, are they about to get pwned <laughs> again? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think you called out, right? First off, I, I, I just, I got to say, I, I don't want to be, be rude or anything, Chris, but this this was a, a tough article to read just because there was a, a, a handful of different, I, I'm not sure if they were typos in there or not. Um, however, there was a handful of locations where uh, SMTP was was written as, as something else, and it, it definitely threw me off as I was reading through this. And, I, and and maybe I'm wrong in understanding mail protocols, but this one threw me off a little bit just because it was an interesting one. But nonetheless, um, I, 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 I got to say, we've talked about this timeline before, and if I'm reading from the, you know, the, the article here, right? Uh, WordFence, the, the company that, that found this, I think, uh, contacted the vendor about the critical flaw on December 8th, 2023, and then followed up with a proof of concept exploit on December 15th. The cross-site scripting issue was reported on December 19th. POC was shared the next day. And we had a plugin published, uh, an updated plugin published on January 1st. So we had maybe, you know, a two-week turnaround. Uh, I should say a, a two to three-week turnaround on all these. I, I love the speed with which the vendor moved here to get this turned around. I mean, I got to say from a security perspective, you know, you and I have both sat here and sometimes talked about months to get these things turned around. I love the fact that they turned it around so quickly. I was a huge fan of that one. Uh, it was great to see that. I don't know how much we'll see pwnage happen here. I haven't really seen anything in the news about 
public stats yet. Um, this feels that you and I have talked kind of about the academic side of vulnerabilities before, and and I think it felt a little bit like this, um, only because I, I don't know if they said it was being exploited in the wild. I, I didn't remember seeing that happen. Maybe I was wrong, but I didn't remember seeing that happen where they said it was being um, you know exploited out in the wild. So this might be an instance where someone was kind of testing WordPress and, and figured a particular thing out. And uh, nonetheless, you know, it's, it's it's really good to see that that timeline worked, that it's being tested by responsible folks who with disclosure moralities and it's being patched quickly. Like overall, if this thing is not being exploited in the wild, I love the time frame and I love the way that which with with which this was reported and the way that this was kind of offered so that, you know, it was everyone's protected. Um, so a hat tip to the folks over at WordFence for, for kind of going about this the right way. Again, assuming that's kind of the the method that it went through. I, Chris, on the other side of this, I, I don't find this something that's going to be impossible to replicate. I wouldn't be surprised if here we are again talking about patching and whatnot. I wouldn't be surprised if we saw, you know, some threat actor somewhere weaponize this and then start to just spread around hoping to to drop into unpatched WordPress and grab, you know, one patch instances and grab copies of this data and whatnot. I hope we don't see it. Um, I would highly recommend anyone who's managing or looking through WordPress instances to wrap some protection around those, whether it's getting logs into a seam that you can start to write detections against, if it's, you know, auditing files or using a service like WordVents or whatever it might be, um, implement some detections, especially given the level of data that is now being stored inside of WordPress sites, the mailing lists are becoming some of the hottest commodities out there. And that's some of the things that adversaries are going for. And sure enough, that's some of the data that was accessible via this as well. You know, password reset emails, site takeover, authenticate to the mailer. I mean, if you're someone out there who's running a WordPress site and you've got a few thousand members or more in a in a mailing list, that is not only your economy and your selling point, but it's also an asset that you need to protect. And I think vulnerabilities like this can unfortunately put that kind of stuff at risk. And I think my concern with this one, you know, a lot of WordPress sites get built, put up, and then sort of forgotten and aren't actively managed. And I could just see uh, somebody taking the CBE now that it's being published and going and getting a bunch of machines under their control. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I think there's a th- th- there's a double side to that sword there, uh, Chris. One of them being, if it's not actively managed, how valuable is the data? But the flip side of that is, um, it, you're, you're right. It's, it's an instance yep. that's up and running. And you and I have talked about areas where WordPress is, WordPress sites, they'll be, uh, you know, abused to host C2 yep. or to host, uh, help deliver malware yep. and things like that. And, and I agree with you. I think that's going to be one of the biggest threats here is those unpatched kind of collecting dust instances might be repurposed or weaponized into dudes doing something else. And the CVE will probably have a much longer tail effect on, on that happening. Um, and, and I want to clarify one thing I spoke about earlier. I said that I don't think this thing is being observed in the wild. Sure enough, after, after double checking, it looks like it did come about as a result of a holiday bug extravaganza bug bounty program, which is fantastic to see. I hope this was done and developed and has remained thus far inside of an academic, um, area and not, uh, you know, not being abused and, and utilized in the wild. I hope that's the case. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, I'm not meaning to punch over at the folks that do WordPress, but uh, the number one comment on Reddit under this article was, uh, WordPress is a vulnerability platform that occasionally hosts websites. And I 
I can't I, help I, it. You, I thought that was a yeah. little bit funny. <laughs> ne- neither you or I came up with those words, <laughs> right? right? We're just repeating someone else's comment. But yeah. uh, I, I just got to say, I, I, I had a chuckle myself when I read that, heard you say it. And then when I also thought that this was a WordPress bug bounty holiday extravaganza i just kind of was like wow i mean <laughs> imagine basing an entire bug bounty program on uh, against one platform yeah um but yeah nonetheless it was it was an interesting one but um let's hope this one remains as just a blip in the dark and not something that uh you know ends up being weaponized and used in mass yeah awesome okay matt well that's the end of this week's uh list uh thanks again for coming out Thanks to all those folks in our Slack community that continue to post these Intel items for us to talk about. And uh, if you're not there, go sign up, slack.limacharlie.io. And uh, we'll see you next week. Sounds good. Thanks, Chris. Great being here. Take care, sir. Bye. And that concludes this episode of the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast. If you have any feedback or ideas for future topics, please send an email to defenders at limacharlie.io. You can access the Intel we talk about on the show in real time and join the conversation on the Lima Charlie Community Slack channel at slack.limacharlie.io. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with someone or leaving a rating or review. And don't forget to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening from. Thanks for listening in. We'll see you on the next episode.